it's funny. I, I let it get like really quiet like that, and I can actually feel you getting antsy. I mean, I can feel the people on the other side of the camera who are watching this two days from now getting antsy because quiet is just icky. Uh, thank you for being here this morning. Uh, for those who have tuned in for any of the last few weeks, you know that we've taken a break from uh, our study of the book of Mark so that we could just spend some time um, in encouragement and hope and, you know, and ee. That's a, that's a thing. It's, it's Hebrew. It's hard to... Anyway, um, because, you know, this bears repeating repeatedly. Uh, the good news of Jesus is not only good news when you die. Um, there's a whole bunch of it that's good news while you're still alive and kicking and here and roaming around. And, you know, some of that good news is, you know, hope and encouragement and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and faithfulness, self-control. And I went off in a totally different tangent. But you see what I'm saying? There's a lot of stuff tied up in the life and kingdom of Jesus that is applicable here and now before you, you know, you know what I'm saying? I'm just going to try going up with that a little bit. Uh, so I just want to share a story with you this morning. And uh, it's about David. Now, the thing about David is, David is David. Um, like, if, okay, go with me here. If all of heaven was going to play kickball, you know Jesus is totally going to be one of the captains, and David is totally going to be the other captain. Except in heaven kickball, the last will be first and the first shall be last. And so I guess getting picked first there is the same as getting picked. I don't know. The metaphor breaks down. But anyway... David, David, and we always think of David in these huge terms. David, king of Israel. David, who fought and killed Goliath. David, who was, you know, the, the forerunner of the Messiah. David. Except David wasn't always, I feel like if I do it one more time, I'm going to be stuck. So David wasn't always David. There was a whole lot of time in David's life and if, if you really get into your Bible and start reading about, you know, particularly as, as Tracy um, brilliantly in a message to the uh, Alaska Baptist Resource Network last week was talking about the, um, you know, the, the cloud of witnesses and all the, all the forerunners of the faith who have come before us. And, you know, if you get into their stories, life wasn't always, you know, peaches and cream for them. It wasn't always milk and honey. There was a lot of time these great heroes of the faith spent in just horrid, miserable situations. Which means if, if they had faith and they had a relationship with God who brought them through horrid, miserable situations, the same is probably true for us. So you got David. Um, we come to a point, uh, I was looking up a... a a rough, I mean, you know, there's no, like, written records, so we can definitively say, yeah, I'm born here, and this happened here. And, but roughly, um, when the prophet Samuel came to the town of Bethlehem 
to the family of Jesse, and he said, I got to see your kids. Uh, one of them is going to be the king of Israel. I, I know we got a king, but this, it's, a, it's a whole thing. One of your kids is going to be the king in Israel. Haul him out here. Uh, and they brought them all in, and each one looks marginally less perfect for king than the one that came before. Because, um, you know, obviously, it's going to be the oldest child. They got all the looks and talent and charm and intelligence. And then, you know, parents, if you're having multiple kids, you have to consider, you know, as that gets halved down the line. I mean, if you're a second kid, you're like a sixth kid. But I digress. So he hauls them all out, and Sam is like, not one of these is the right kid. Who's left? And they haul in David. And one of the things we don't understand about David is when David comes in, and David is anointed, and, da and, and God says, this David will be my king of my people. David's like 10 years old. Which means he's only like 15 when he goes out and beats, uh, beats Goliath in battle. So David has a lot of life here, you know, because he, he gets on the stage early, and so he's got a lot of years to fill. So there comes a point in the story I'm about to tell where we find David. David is hiding in a cave in the wilderness. And whatever you think about David, when our story takes place, David is uh, one 20 years on, 20 years on from the point where he was anointed king, and he's still waiting because the other king is still alive and kicking. So David has been waiting 20 years for this promise from God that he will be king, and it hasn't happened. And so David's just sort of like, um, Lord, I, you know, your time, not my time, but... Uh, So 20 years, he's been waiting to be king, and we find him hiding in a cave. He's hiding in a cave because the current king, King Saul, wants to kill him, dead. And potentially, probably, most likely, if the king of Israel wants you dead, you got to figure there's a large percentage of individuals in his kingdom who also want you dead. But if that weren't enough, not only does Saul want him dead, not only do a lot of the Jews of, of Israel want him dead, but also the Philistines want him dead. The Philistines in this time we're looking at are like the A number one arch nemesis, joker to the Batman enemies of Israel. And quite possibly, the only thing they hate worse on the entire face of planet Earth is David. Because uh, Goliath was a Philistine. So, so now you can see. So they're like, dude, you killed our, like, our guy. And I was trying to think of, of like, a, an analogy to that. It, it would be like, you know, 1977, and you go to New York City, and you killed Reggie Jackson. 
Okay, maybe that's not a good analogy. I don't know. Moving on. So, Saul wants him dead. All of Israel, well, a lot of Israel wants him dead. The Philistines want him dead. He is hiding out in a cave in, in the Judean wilderness. I mean, it's, it's not a pretty place. It's, it's pretty sparse, pretty barren. And then, all of a sudden, other people start showing up to hide in his cave with him. Which I have to wonder if, if all these other people, by the time we get to the story, like 400 other people have showed up to join him hiding in his cave. Um, you know, Saul, it wasn't like he was doing a great job at this. And so all of a sudden these other people, and it's the, it's the disdained and the abused and the disenfranchised and the overlooked and the outlawed who are all sh- joining up, who are showing up to join in the band of David. And if your mind hasn't gotten there yet, how is this not the source material for Robin Hood? I mean, admittedly, Robin Hood had like really sweet Sherwood Forest where it was like green and lush and rivers and like the king's deer to shoot and David's is like a drippy, dampy, moldy cave in the desert. But still, I mean, you see it, right? And so now, now on top of everything else, on top of all these other concerns, on top of all this stuff that's in David's mind, he has now got to take care of 400 other people. He wasn't looking for that. He was like, I'm just here and I'm hiding. And we, um, in youth group, back when there was such a thing, um, we used to play this game. It's called Sardines. And basically, sardines is reverse hide-and-seek, where one person goes and hides, and then everybody else who's playing goes and looks for that person. But when you find that person, you, you stay with them. And so the first person, now there's two people hiding, and then two more people who are hanging out together find them, and now there's four people hiding. And generally, the first person who hid, hid in like, like a tiny, like under the piano, And then by the time there's one person left, you've got like 27 people crammed under the piano. And if you get like 27 middle schoolers together, it's not quiet. And the more quiet you're supposed to be, the less quiet it's going to be. And the worst thing is, you know, middle school, middle school boys, there's like a hygiene thing there, and it can get ugly. And I can't imagine David's cave was all that different. And so here he is, and, and David's just, David's at the end of his rope. And this is the situation he's in when he pens Psalm 142, which reads thusly. Psalm 142 of Maskil of David when he was in the cave, a prayer. During, during by his own hand, Uh, In his own words, at the time David was in that cave, under these situations, this was his prayer. With my voice, I cry out to the Lord. With my voice, I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. It's okay to complain to the Lord. 
I mean, don't get ahead of yourself and don't get full of yourself. But if it's in here, he knows it and he, he wants to hear it. When my spirit faints within me, you know my way. In the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see, there is none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver my persecutors for me, for they are too strong for me. Bring me out of prison that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. David is cut off. He is isolated. Not only that, but in this current situation, because of the situation he's in, he is now cut off from his best friend in the entire world. He doesn't even have the support of his best friend, who happens to be the king's son. And where this cave is currently situated is a mere 12 miles down the road from Bethlehem, his boyhood home. And so he, in, in spite of the situation, we know that he's relatively secure, and he's not alone, and he has... Uh, forces with him, and it doesn't seem like Saul has the first clue where he is. So physically speaking, he's relatively secure, but in his heart, in his soul, in his spirit, he's feeling alone and isolated and cut off and in danger. And as if there's not a single individual in the world who cares for him or can help him. Look to the right and see, there is none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. Oftentimes, in our own lives, we can get to feeling like this. And sometimes, sometimes our, our life, you know, the, the issue that stands before us is like one thing. One big thing that just seems so overwhelming, it's like it, it feels like there's no hope and I'm completely alone and there's no one who can help me. And, and it's one of these things where, you know, if I could just solve this one thing, my life would be perfect. And yet it can just suck the life out of us. And then other times we look at our lives and we find ourselves in places where we just look around and it seems like, there's just something coming at us from every angle and we can't find a way to break free and we can't find a way to get some space and we can't find a way to just get a little breathing room. And it feels as if the entire world is closing in upon us and there is simply no hope to be found. And, and even, if, even if our heart and our walk is in the right place and we know there's hope in Jesus, you know, in those moments... It, it can be much more of a, a mental, academic idea than something we feel and something we live in. And it's, it's not coincidence that it feels like that. Um, 
there's a great moment when um, a young man is, is feeling very much like this. And he's complaining to someone. And he says, I just feel so all alone. And that's when Luna Lovegood says, that's how he wants you to feel, Harry. Voldemort wants you to feel alone. And just assuredly, we have an enemy. We have a foe who wants us to feel alone in those moments. He wants us to feel alone and isolated and hopeless. Because when we're in that place, we're living on his ground. We're living in his grasp. And so this is the mindset. This is where David is. And you can understand it because you've been there. And maybe you're there now. And hopefully maybe you'll remember this moment somewhere down the road when you find yourself there again. But this is where David is as we enter into our story. So this story is from 2 Samuel, chapter 23 beginning in verse 13. David's in the cave. He's hanging out. And and admittedly, not everybody who has come to join him are just, you know, the random farmers and shepherds and whatnot. I mean, he's got some very serious, repeatedly throughout the Samuels, you know, we see reference to the stories of David's mighty men, men of great valor, men of great war abilities. And so, you know, he is surrounded with some serious you know, 1980s Arnold Schwarzenegger, Sylvester Stallone type dudes. And three of the 30 chief men went down and came about harvest time to David at the cave of Adullam. When a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim, David was then in the stronghold and the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. So David's in the cave. There's like an entire troop of Philistines camped out in a nearby neighborhood uh, valley. And a major garrison of Philistines are camped out in his hometown. David was then in the stronghold, blah, 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 Bethlehem. And David said longingly, oh that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. In this moment of everything David could wish for, David just wants a drink of water from his hometown well. Because there's something about the hometown. Um, I don't know know if there's something about water. not a huge water fan myself. I mean, I force it because, you know, you got to do it to be healthy, but, you know. But, like, my kids, you know, they live in North Carolina. When they come up here to visit, they're drinking water like they're in the desert. They're like, this water is so good. And I'm like, dish, water is water. And they're like, no. Uh, the only, only time I've experienced this is uh, many years ago I went to Waco, Water is not water. They actually referred to it as Waco water. Like one word, Waco water. And I'm pretty sure the whole reason 
iced tea is so huge in the South is because tea covers the taste of the water. But David's sitting here and he's just like, oh, if I could just have a drink of water from Bethlehem. And it's this idea of if I could just have this, just this thing that would bring me some comfort. And, and for you, maybe, maybe it is something that goes back to childhood. Maybe it's, maybe it's a, the smell of, of um, you know, a, a cologne your father used to wear. Or maybe, maybe even the smell of tobacco from back in the day when people smoked. Cigarettes. And, and, but but the, the aroma is tied to a memory. Maybe, maybe it's, oh, if I could just have my mom's famous whatever dish it was she made. Oh, if I could just have that. I, it would just bring peace and comfort for a moment. Oh, if I could just have a cup of water from Bethlehem like I did when I was a kid when everything was so much easier, when I wasn't so all alone. Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. And this is not, I mean, at this point, David is the commander of these people. This is not a command. He's not saying to somebody, hey, go get me a cup of water from the well of Bethlehem. It's, it's to, you know, you're talking to yourself, but then you realize... Oh, did I say that out loud? Then the three mighty men, three of David's dudes, his, his Arnold Schwarzenegger and his, his Sylvester Stallone and his Carl Weathers from Predator, just to mix it up. They hear it and they're like, yeah, yeah. Yeah! And they just start like running down the road. 12 miles to Bethlehem. They are going 12 miles there and 12 miles back to get water. Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried and brought it to David. Now, I am... I am visually oriented. I am movie guy. I am, I read text. Wow. I read text, and in my mind, it translates into video. Uh, There is not a book I've ever read where I have not unconsciously, without thinking about it, cast it as a movie as I'm reading it. Every book I've read has an actor attached to everybody in the book, and I can tell you, nine times out of ten, Hollywood gets it wrong. They should be coming to me. They would do so much better, but that's the way it is. So in my, but on, on this particular point of the story, I'm like, I don't know what happened. I mean, you know, are we like, you know, they come running down the road, and they've got their, their cudgels or their war clubs or their swords or whatever they're, they're wielding, and they're just like, ah! And they're babbling through the lines, and then two guys are holding everybody else while the other guy is working, you know, muscles and sweat. And he's filling up the water, and he's like, got it, let's go! To the chop! No, they didn't have one of those. Was it like that? Or were they like, dun, 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 dun. And they're like, they're like spying their way in there, and they're doing like, like the barrel roll across the ground, and they're... 
you know, and they're like sneaking in and it's the middle of the night and they're like full-blown ninjas. Kind of, if it's a full-blown action, I think it's the first one. If it's a thriller, it's the second one. If it's a comedy, all three of them full-blown dress up as old ladies. Hello there, you shall know where to Bethlehem. Arnold Schwarzenegger doing that. That's my movie version, that's how I'd do it, but I'm here, not Hollywood. So finally, they get into Bethlehem. They get the water. I assume they put it in a covered container and not like an actual cup. You know, I can't imagine them, okay, now 12 mile back with the red solo cup, let's go. And so they've gone 12 miles down the road, which at a good pace, you know, you're talking 15-ish, a little bit better miles, assuming they're not like running. So 15 minutes a mile. So you're talking like six hours there, six hours back. And they're like, whew, man, I'm out of breath. I'm thirsty. Oh, whoop, not that one. And so they come back to David. And they give it to him. And they're like, water from the well at the gates of Bethlehem. Please, please take this. And David takes it in his hand. And I got to imagine, if David is who we think David is, you know, action movie, he would have man cried. I mean, no visible tears, but, you know, the dampening of the eyes and, and the working of the Adam's apple. And he would have just held it and he would have looked at it. And he would have looked at them. And he took it and he poured it out to the Lord. And he said, far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went to the risk of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. See, if David and his troops had been camped in Bethlehem, if they had control of Bethlehem and they had control of the well, it would have been one thing to say to somebody, could you do me a favor? I'm, I'm tied up. Could you go get me some water from the well? And had they brought it back, he would have gladly drunk it. But these are three men of valor who, without asking, without him even realizing he'd been overheard, heard, they, they go on this trek, they put their very lives at danger to bring him back some water. And he says, in what you've done, in the risk you've taken, and the loyalty you've shown me, you have blessed this water and made it far too holy for me, a simple man, to drink. And the only one worthy of drinking from this cup is God, my Father. And he pours out that offering to the Holy Father. But see, the ultimate blessing for David wasn't in the water. I have to realize the ultimate blessing for David is the realization that, thank you, Lord, 
You know, I, I, I said, here I am alone. Here I said, look to my right, and nobody cares for me. Nobody cares for my soul, and all of a sudden, here they are. I see before me three men who care at risk of life and limb enough for me that they would go and do this thing. And then I have to imagine, in that moment, taken outside his, his maybe a bit selfish, self-centered thought process, he looked around and he saw many others just like them. And he said, you know what? I'm not alone. I'm not by myself. I'm not isolated. I'm not cut off. There are people who care for me. There are people who care for my soul. And first and foremost is God Almighty who gave me these people to surround me and lift me up and support me in a moment just like this. Folks, the message I want to give to you this morning is, right now, maybe you're David. You need to look to your mighty men. You need to stop and get outside your own head for a minute and look around you and see who you've got in your corner. You need to realize you are not alone. I mean, first and foremost, if you're watching, if you're here, assumedly, you are part of this church family. And if you are part of this family, you are not alone. One of my favorite movie lines ever from Lilo and Stitch. Ohana means family. And family means no one gets left behind or forgotten. If you are part of this family, you are not alone. You are not left behind. You are not forgotten. Your circumstances may make it seem like that. Circumstances somewhere down the road that you can't even envision yet may make you feel like that. But the enemy wants you to feel like that. But you need to put that aside and realize you are part of a family. You have mighty men in your corner. You are not alone. And conversely, whether you're in that position, maybe precisely because you are in that position where you feel cut off and alone, you need to stop and recognize you are somebody else's mighty men. There is somebody out there that you know right now who is feeling alone, as if nobody cares for them. There is no one there to lift up their soul. And they need somebody. Somebody to come and lift them up and minister to them and, and just be the love of God. See, oftentimes in David's prayers, he pours out his soul. He pours out his complaint. Dear God, here's everything that's wrong. And he goes on for like 192 verses about everything that's wrong. And then he wraps it up in like two verses, but it's cool. I know you're there. I know you're going to take care of it when you're ready. Amen. <laughs> and a lot of times, because the way God operates, we, in our bad moment, we, we can't put a clock on when God is going to answer that prayer. David goes on for the 192 verses, pouring out his complaint, 
He doesn't at any point in time throw in there, and uh, I need you to do something about this in the next six and a half hours, or we have issues. It's simply understood that God will do what God must do, what God will do when God will do it. So David probably did not in his remotest mind have the idea that as he poured out this prayer that there would come hours, days, a few weeks, this moment when he would recognize there are people who care for me. There are people looking out for me. There are people who have my back. And conversely, right now, there's somebody in your life who's having a similar moment to David, who's pouring out a similar prayer to God. And maybe it is completely outside of your power to do anything about the issue they have. There is absolutely nothing you and your finite human resources can do to help them with their core issue. But you can be there. You can be there to be one of their mighty men. You can be there to say, look, just as assuredly as I am here with you, God is here with you. And, and I can't help you with what you got going on, but I'm here. And, and maybe, maybe God just sent me as a forerunner to let you know he's working on it. And in the meantime, you're not alone and you're not forgotten. And particularly at this point in time, when circumstances have already conspired to isolate us and separate us more than we ever have in our lifetimes, we need to be proactively searching for those ways that we can let the people in our life know, hey, I don't see you as much as I used to, but I'm not gone. I'm still here. I still have your back. I'm still in your corner. You know, a, 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 lot of, a lot of stuff burned out in like the, you know, we thought this was going to be kind of a short-term thing. And there was a lot of stuff people took up in, in the first few months. I mean, Zoom. Everything went to Zoom. And we thought Zoom was going to be a thing forever. And then after a couple of months, people are just like, nah, I, I, no, nah, I'm out. I can't do this Zoom thing anymore. It's, no, it's... There was that really, really sweet period right there when, like, people trapped at home with nothing better to do were, like, finding their way into the kitchen. And they started making bread and cookies and delivering it, right? Oh, my. Uh, this did not need it. This right here, absolutely. And, and, and for me personally, I have a fairly, fairly sunny disposition. I mean, you know, it's not ice cream and rainbows and unicorns all the time, but a lot of the time. I have a fairly optimistic, if exceedingly cynical, outlook on life. And so, so even in the midst, you know, even when, you know, things didn't clear up when we thought it could, and the realization that 
Okay, this, we're, in like, we're not in a sprint anymore. We're in a marathon. I, I found myself personally to be in a pretty good place. I mean, in my spirit, I was in a good place. Mentally, emotionally, I was in a good place. But still, to, to get a knock on the door and answer it and, and find a, a plate of cookies waiting there, or to get, get a phone call or a text message just saying, hey, just checking in, just, just reminding you that we're family. If, if this all went away tomorrow, if, if the COVID went away tomorrow and it wasn't a thing anymore and we could get back to things exactly the way they used to be, there are still people day by day having a hard time. There are still people day to day dealing with things we simply don't know about. And there are still people day to day who just need somebody to say, hey, you're family and I'm your family and you're not forgotten and you're not left behind. And that is the message I offer to you this morning. That is the call I place to you this morning. Whose mighty men are you? And this coming week, maybe even today, whose mighty men, in very non-gender specific terms, do you need to be? I mean, ideally, even as you listen to this, there was somebody in your mind that, that a, 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 pick of a face flashed in your mind, and you're like, that's my person. That's... An, I need to be their mighty men. And right now, if you're in that situation where you're isolated and you're cut off, even more than many, you need to be looking for who you can do for. Because nothing will get you out of, out of that mindset and that sorrow and that pit and that despair of being alone and being cut off like doing for somebody else. Because when you're doing for somebody else, you are putting somebody else in your mind instead of yourself. And so whatever situation you're in this morning, you need to look in your life and say, whose mighty man can I be? Would you stand with me as we close in prayer? And then uh, we're probably going to do one more song, and that should be the end of things. Uh, of services this morning, not, you know, in general far as I know. I mean, I don't have like some inside information. Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for this wonderful church. I thank you for this wonderful people. I just pray, Father, that uh, you would have spoken to each and every one of us, that you would have had a personal conversation, that each one of us would understand exactly what it is you want from us, exactly what it is you're saying to us, and that you would give us the strength and courage to be obedient to whatever it is you called us to. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you. May you go this week and not be so involved in your own problems that you can't help someone else and not be so involved in your own problems that you don't recognize the help of others around you. In Jesus' name we pray, 
Amen.